Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today is Coach's Corner. We haven't had one in a very long time. I think we recorded one before Christmas, so I think it was like the first one in January. So this is volume 29, I'm going to guess. Dallas can correct me if he wants. Uh, but Jane and Dallas, how are we? Fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely amazing. Well, we have quite an action-packed episode, um, so we're not going to kind of waste that much time with kind of the formalities and stuff. But today's episode is kind of questions that came in through Team SWF, which is our one-to-one clients. So some of the questions that we're going to talk about is training and nutrition with fibromyalgia. We're going to talk about nutrition and training and stuff like that with PKU. So what is actually PKU, which I don't think a lot of people are aware of anyway. We're also going to talk about stress eating, why some people undereat or overeat in their response to stress. And then we're also going to talk about kind of losing the, the, the kind of the slimming club mentality. So Jane also may need to leave early. So if Jane mic drops halfway through, uh, well, then uh, we sincerely apologize because uh, people seem to like <laughs> My what we've, yeah, what we've <laughs> realized in this coach's corner is Jane seems to be the favorite. <laughs> Dallas and I seem to be the two angry people. I'm and adorable. J- Jane is the uh, the voice of reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and Dallas and I just go off on tangents. So Jane is the balance. Uh, so the first bit that we're going to talk about, Dallas, you're up here because I know this is all the sciencey bit and you love this. Um, so I'm going to get you to talk about fibromyalgia. So what it is, yeah. how to manage it, then what, how much stress impacts it, and then what can we do regarding kind of the training and nutrition side of things. So it's very whirlwind. Cool. So I think we'll start off nice and easy. So fibromyalgia is a way of what's well, a technically a disease, which is debilitating in a sense that it's chronic pain. Now there's Last time I checked, there was an estimation about roughly 20 million, 20 million people throughout the US that suffer with it. Now, if you extrapolate that towards majority of the planet, you're looking at an excess of close to 100 million actually suffer with this kind of chronic pain. And now the, the interesting thing about fibro is that it's a severe disorder that's on a continuum of persistent pain. So if you want to think about it, we stub our toes, right? And we get a pain threshold of nine, you know, but that lasts for about five minutes. Someone with fibro ends up having a consistent pain that is sitting at a seven or eight for majority of the days. Now it goes in waves, so it goes up and down, but they're always feeling a baseline of pain, which is can obviously be very hard to deal with. So some of the characteristics is obviously suffering, obviously general suffering, if you want to look at it. Um, we also get uh, overall muscular pain, so whole body pain, but also stiffness. We also see stiffness. Then we see a lot of fatigue. We see disturbed sleep. We get uh, discognition, which is basically fuzziness in the brain. And then we also get you know extremely poor quality of life. And that's just one of the kind of small things, if you want to look at it, that comes from fibro. And then we can also see that when we deal with fibro as a whole, we see that the health service as general trying to treat it uses drugs to try and treat it the most. But dealing with patients that have fibro often incurs more of a cost on the health system because it's really hard to quantify what they're going through. When it comes to studies, it's really hard to actually understand what's happening because you have to try and figure out, is this a fibro case or is this a stress case? 
and it's hard to you know delineate between the two of them and that's one of the issues with trying to figure out what works for fiber patients so when you want to look at it we can see that the exhaustion is quite high and then what that exhaustion does for the person means that it's often challenging for them to focus. So like for one of our clients, shout out to Kate, who's absolutely amazing. And she will often talk about how at times she will struggle to focus. And it's just no matter how what she tries, it's going to be focus is going to be a tough thing. And but that's a big characteristic. Now, we also see there's an unpredictable nature as well. So there are going to be days where focus is perfect. And there's going to be days where, well, there'll be days where pain is ridiculously high and then pains where it's manageable. And that's the kind of the annoying thing for people when dealing with fibro is that you can't predict it. You don't know when things are going to happen. We can say that, oh, I had a very stressful day. The likelihood of me having pain tomorrow might be high, but it's not always the case. So when we're looking at that, there are a few kind of ways of improving fiber. So we know one of the character or another characteristic, not one. Um, another characteristic is they have diminished aerobic fitness. So in a sense that when you have fibro, you end up having less output, less oxygenation of the blood. So what you want effectively want to try and do is get some cardio in. Now, last time I checked the study was what, 2014, there was that on an average of a 30 to 40 year old um, patients who had gone through the study, their findings of cardiac fitness rivaled those of 80-year-olds. So if you think about that, like a 30 to 40-year-old having the same fitness as someone who is, sorry to say, close enough to the deathbed, is kind of crazy. And that's a symptom of fibro. So it's imperative that when anyone who has fibro can start actually getting, you know, low base cardio in and start slowly improving their aerobic fitness. And the reason that's going to be a good thing because fibro increases mortality and then bringing their cardio in then will help decrease that mortality rate. So something you definitely want to be looking at. Um, we, how do I say? With fibro, we often see there's a change in how pain is processed, right? So pain is a very hard thing to classify for a lot of us. Studying pain is quite hard because for instance, I could literally knock you on your knee and then I can go and stab you in your pinky, but you're not, you're no longer thinking and feeling pain in your knee. You're thinking of pain in your pinky, right? Now with fibro, it's more of a whole body processing. So it's more of the central nervous system and the whole peripheral nervous system feeling pain Co um, coinciding together. And that's something that's a little bit of uh, an issue because then what we can see is there's a genetic predisposition to it. We also see autonomic dysfunctions. We see emotional, physical, and environmental stresses also play within that. So to sum that part up, it's because fibro is a chronic pain that can be felt within the central nervous system as well as the peripheral nervous system, any form of stressor, the environment, emotional dysregulation, or anything like, say, heightened emotions, or any genetic predispositions to say a mental health can have issues and can cause further symptoms to call with fibro. So it's like when working with patients or working with people who have fibro, or if you're currently listening and have fibro, you've got to take into account that 
not only how the environment impacts you. So if you've got a busy environment, that's uh, going to be a certain stressor. But you can also look at it not only how you perceive the environment and how that's going to impact your pain. But then it also comes down to, do you have any genetic predisposition, predispositions in a sense that is there anything that means that you're going to only have health issues that could then once again come into your pains and symptoms. Other things with it, we see infl inflammatory dysfunctions. So we can see that there's a lot of trauma within the muscles, which also can lead to when starting exercise, we get extreme dance. <laughs> and talking with Kate, when we first started getting a lot of the exercise in, she would be like, I did something and I'm in absolute agony. And it's like, it's something you can't stop, but it's something that gets better as time goes on. So it's like with strength training, you want to take it slow. You want mixed modality in a sense that you want to ensure that there is some cardio in there. You want to ensure that there is some stretching in there, but you also want to take your time to build up heavy loads. And the reason behind heavy loads is that it often helps. So we've got quite a few systematic reviews and some meta-analysis that pain reduction starts to occur that the more we weight train. But the difference is you can't come in and decide, hey, I'm going to go, you know, balls to the wall here and actually start lifting it heavy. You're going to have to condition the body to it because you're already going to be feeling a heightened amount of pain. So you can imagine it's going to take a little bit longer to get to that position. From other ways of looking at it, we can see that um, fibros often use drugs, which is fine. Um, if you want to look at it, there is some improvement. So in terms of sense that using, you know, high-grade drugs, and in terms of, I mean, high-grade drugs, I mean, the stuff that really stops pain, you get to reduce pain roughly about 20 to 30%. So if you think about that, that is still relatively high on the pain scale. So if you're having a day where you're at 10% or 100% pain, you're only reducing it down to about a 7 out of 10 it is still a lot of pain to deal with, but it's often just enough to get you through. Now, when you bring in, obviously, the likes of drugs, we see issues from in terms of nausea. We see edema, which often happens usually when they start taking it. So you've got a high day and you take um, a decent amount of drugs to stop the pain. The next day, if you step on the scale, you might be up in weight. So be conscious of that, that it's just the water retention you also have some weight gain for some um, because it's like the pain is still there. So then more eating and you can get something like, you know, um, altered heartbeats from the medication because it's going to speed it up. So something to think of when you combine drugs and you combine exercise, we start noticing that we actually get a better overall change in pain reduction. And that's the key there. It's use your drugs wisely but also bring in modalities to help reduce pain. So aerobic fitness, which you spoke about, some resistance training, but also you can bring in the likes of cold therapy, so cold showers. And the reason cold showers work so absolutely beautifully, wonderfully, even though you have to get over the initial feeling, is the fact that one of the, how do we say, one of the inflammation markers, IL-6, so interleukin-6, is down-regulated when you go into a cold therapy. So what you got to recognize is that if you can build yourself up to lower your overall stress response and pain within the day by taking cold water therapy. So for instance, with Kate, we started with 10 seconds and we built her up to two minutes to the point now that it's 
consistent in her day. It's something that helps her. It's a routine. It's regular. And she knows how to keep her body in that position. And it helps obviously lower stress overall for her and reduces inflammation, which is a very, very good thing on that side of things. You can also look at it other things, more like say yoga. And the nice thing about like, say like yoga, Tai Chi, or, you know, Qui-Gon or anything in terms of that kind of uh, relaxation, stretching protocols is often being shown to help obviously lower stress, but the stretching helps as well as part of, you know, actually releasing tension within the muscles. So it's like these alternative therapies as everyone likes to call it in um, the studies is something I highly recommend everyone try and find which one works for you. So whether it be going for something nice and easy, like swimming, so that way you don't feel as much weight on your body or going for something like yoga, put it in, find it where it is. But the one thing like everyone has to recognize when it comes to any of this, and it's something that like I was talking to Kate about, she was like, okay, just make sure people understand this, that understanding the difference between stress as well as your fibro can be really hard and to focus on one can be really hard to achieve. So it's a lot of it is you've got to recognize not only your routine, but you've also got to learn what is actually a stressor to the body and what is fibro. It is very hard, but the more you start to tune into your body, the more you get to understand, is it my work day or is it the environment that's pushing me into this position? Because if you can understand the differences between what is fibro pain and what is pain based from stress, which then triggers fibro, you can now take your time and effort to obviously work on the stress side, which is going to lower the symptoms on the fibro side. So it's like a lot of what you need to do is going to spend time working through your stresses and the tools needed to deal with those stresses. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Go for it. So say if someone that has fibro um, has is doing the therapies that you're saying in the morning. So doing the cold water therapy, they built that up slowly, slowly. They're doing kind of yoga or Pilates, whatever, whatever one they prefer, whatever one they want. They have quite a stressful job. Um, they're finishing work on time or whatever it may be, but yet they're still having flare-ups. Mm. How would you kind of counteract that or how would you work with that? You need to base it on figuring out where your flare-ups first start from. So if you are in a very stressful job, obviously minimizing stress is going to be the biggest protocol, right? For a lot of people, minimizing stress from a job is really hard. So you need to first understand what is your priority. And it's like, if your priority is work above your body, you are always going to have a flare-up and always be in pain. And everyone goes, yeah, but I need work to survive. 100%. Yes, we do. But work can be second and health can be first. Can it not? Sure. And what does that look like? That means that you got to understand that certain times during work when you're going to get something stressful, you're going to have to either take some time away to decompress. So go to the toilet, sit down in the toilet and take some breathing work. You got to understand that you have to limit the amount you get in work to a certain degree, or you have to spend more time decompressing after work and actually getting into a present moment. Now, when people are in that state, they often go, yeah, but I don't need to. It's just going to cause me pain because work needs to be done and work's always going to be there. So I'm going to do it and put health on a second line. So if you can start routinely actually being more present in what you are doing, for instance, you're decompressing your stress relief, you'll notice a very little um, 
well, you should see very little flare-ups occur because now what you're doing is you're routinely putting in, um, how do we say, stress blockers, for instance, in terms of it waking up in the morning, doing the therapies, and then going, right, I can work for an hour. I need to take a 10-minute break, and I can work for an hour again. And you rinse, repeat that. Now you're building a routine that the body can adjust to, but you're also learning to be present in those moments where you're de-stressing, and that makes a difference. But also understanding that not only does your work need to know about your condition, and a lot of people don't want to say that because yeah. it's like, oh, it's seen as a as a weakness. It's like, right, try give everybody the same amount of pain, and you've got a base level of pain of seven every single day. How do you think everyone else is going to feel? Everyone's going to be absolutely hating life. So it's like, this is what you go through on a daily basis. You people need to know about this. So it's like telling the work, getting them understanding and getting support for it. So it's like you have to build the routine into that. Now, obviously, we can go into in terms of supplementations. You know, we can bring in, say, like... Quick fire, yeah. Yeah. So it's like we can bring in coenzyme or it's a coenzyme Q10 to be precise. Now helps improve cholesterol, reduces fatigue, improves IL-6, IL-8, and TNF. So we're looking at, obviously, inflammation markers, which is something going to be high on fibro. And we're looking, for the majority of people, you can start at a 200 milligram dose, work up to, say, 500 milligrams. But just taking a base level to two to 300 milligrams, we see good improvements. And we can see a L-carotene, one gram split throughout the day. So ideally you kind of do say 500 grams to maybe um, say 250 and you can split it up at least three to four times. Works lovely. It does the same thing, just helps relax yourself. You could also go down the aspect of bringing um, ashwagandha in if you truly wish. Um, for some, it does work. For others, it's not, but it's very dependent on the person. So it's something that you really have to kind of focus on. And then ashwagandha, like realistically, you want a KSM 66 version so that you're actually getting proper um, ashwagandha instead of just, you know, a watered-down bark tree. And then you're looking at that to dose that roughly about 500 milligrams. If you wake up and you feel a high amount of anxiety, feel a high amount of stress, take it in the morning. But if you're not feeling that, try and have it towards the end of the night, and then that will help as well with sleep. Nutrition-wise, it follows every other nutrition protocol, which is eat varied, get a decent amount of protein, and make sure that fruit and veg are truly looked after. So that way, every other position is looked after. And I would say focus a lot on fiber, purely for the fact that we see high cholesterol rates in fiber patients. And IBS. That's true. And IBS, so yeah, managing your IBS is a massive thing as well. I've seen that with, with clients before, and if their IBS is, if the stress is high and that's not the boundaries and stuff isn't being worked, the, the, the flare-ups with IBS can be a massive trigger. So it's kind of having to work that a little bit harder and kind of identifying the certain foods that are doing that for you and kind of keeping an eye on that and making sure you are getting enough veggies and kind of that side of things so yeah no i think that's like that that was that was epic um so thank you for that um so just one last question on that with those supplements should they all be taken together or separately just one last uh, question as a caveat ideally ashwagandha should be taken in the evening your co q enzyme 10 and alcartan can be literally taken together in the morning try and take it with food ideally um that's always going to be the nice thing take it with food you'd be fine um, but as you were pointing out with irritable syndrome, do understand that for anyone listening who has it, 
your fibro will mean that you will have obviously sensitivity disorders, i.e. you'll be sensitive to certain foods, um, as well as say for some people, bright lights. That also means you can have IBS based things. It also means you can have um, irritating bladders, also means headaches, pelvic pains, um, you know, restless leg syndrome, um, as well as, you know, chronic fatigue, lower back pain is, you know, common aspects of it. So it's just like those things can be sorted with time. Lower back pain obviously comes from more of the relaxation and yoga aspects, but obviously coming from strength training can truly kind of really strengthen everything around there. So it's just like be understanding that you have a chronic pain disease and understand that not every day is going to work. And that's totally fine. Don't get hung up on it. And don't worry about your pain. If you continuously to worry about the pain you are actually going through, you are going to then create a stressful environment, which is then going to give you more pain. So it's just like understand that this is how things are and you can do things to manage it and still enjoy your life without having to always be going, right, I'm in heightened mode here. I need to take drugs. I think the big thing you said there as well is in relation to the, the work stuff, like actually tell your boss or yeah. if you're self-employed, it's a little bit difficult, but there's still hey. a way to do it. But it's, it's, you can still share the workload if you have it and being able to tell your boss. I think that's something that needs to be said. Like if you've got deadlines and stuff and you're not able for it and your body's flaring up, you need to look at what's what's being focused as a priority. Is it going to, is, is it you or work? And if it's work, well, then you're, you're, things are going to get triggered and you're more important. You only have one you. You can't look after your job here. Your job on earth right now is not to do your job. It's to look after you and you only. So that was, that was superb. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Jane, we yeah. might as well get something out of you while you're here. <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> Taking notes. I'm learning. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, the, the next one is, I think this is something that has hit every single one of us. Uh, I'm one end of the spectrum of it. And I'd say Dallas and Jane are the other end of the spectrum <laughs> in relation to stress eating. Uh, so I am one that doesn't eat when they get stressed. And yeah. that's why I do struggle to put on weight. Uh, and Dallas and Jane would be ones that could go oh. to food when they get a little bit more stressed, uh, particularly for exam time and stuff like that. I know yeah. Dallas has spoken about that on previous yeah. episodes. But Jane, can you kind of talk about a little bit of like, why are there two different responses in in people and kind of what if there are what hormones are at play and stuff like that yeah so we do know that stress influences appetite and you know there's physical reasons and there's emotional reasons as well and it varies person to person so it's not a really simple simple thing to diagnose you know which person's going to stress eat and which person's not but if we kind of explore it a little bit it might give some reason to people about it. But also I think what the most important thing is going to be the recognition that managing stress is going to be key for both ends of the spectrum. Because if you're under eating significantly, it's going to impact your health. And if you're overeating significantly, it's going to impact your health. So that's kind of the key point on it. But some people, I think, are so focused on stress and the stressors that they ignore the hunger cues and that would be like yourself Shane it would be like if things are stressed and you're stressed out and there's a lot of stressors you'd be more inclined to ignore hunger cues and just focus on the stress on the stressors whilst those who are more inclined to overeat are distracting from the stress 
and looking for comfort from the stress and seeking that instead. So that's two very, very important points about it. It's distraction or like being so focused and identifying with the stress and the stressor that you forget to eat or you're distracting from the stress by eating. And that's two very, the very important like basis of it. But stress does impact us and down to hormones and everything like that as well in the physiological sense. Stress in the short term can shut down our appetite because when we get stressed, adrenaline is released. Adrenaline will suppress our appetite in that fright or flight kind of mode. You know, we're not going to want to eat. But then when it's prolonged, it releases cortisol and cortisol can increase our appetite and motivate us to eat. Now, this is talking very generally, as as pointed out initially, some people it's gonna, aren't going to want to eat, some people are. So it is very personal. Now, stress also influences our food choices, and that's a big part of it as well. Like high fat and sugary foods tend to be the things that people are most drawn to when they are stressed out. And that is because I think when high cortisol and high insulin, they're, when they're ramped up during periods of stress, we are more driven to those type of foods because they dampen the response. So really high fat foods and high sugar foods will dampen that stress response. And the more and more you dampen that response by choosing those foods because they are comfort foods per se that make you feel less stressed, it dampens the response even further. So you need, you're going to reach for those foods more and more frequently. They're not giving you the same comfort that you would have initially had from when you started having them and we learn we learn that these foods provide us comfort these foods help us with stress these foods are what we need to reach for when we're stressed out so it's a very that's a very very learned response before a physical reason initially so it does also they've noted that women tend to stress eat more than men a higher percentage of females too so gender seems to play somewhat of a role in it and there's also indications that those with more prolonged stress will tend to undereat more than overeat. So there's there's a lot of variables there on that one. <laughs> and again, it's it's one of those things that is very individual based. There was um, some research done using mice, but you know their brains show some similar 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 um, results to ours in studies. And in the tests on mice, there was. They found a neurocircuit, I believe, in the area of the brain that regulates um, eating and also regulates emotions. So that'd be like the hippocampus to the amygdala, I believe, to do with emotional regulation. And they found this neurocircuit that when activated, um, it decreased appetite. But when that neurocircuit was switched off, appetite increased. So that kind of indicates that different types of stress and prolonged stress could have an impact on our drive to overeat and that emotional connection with it there. So I think there needs to be a lot more research to figure out more about it. But the base fact of it all is we know stress influences appetite. We know stress and high cortisol has massive influence on our sleep and other factors that contribute to poor health. So irrelevant if you unreat or overeat, both need to be managed because neither are positive for health and they indicate that you are too stressed. And that elevation of stress has so many other knock-on impacts on your health in general, that that should be the focus of management. And when it comes to managing stress, that's dependent on which, which one like manifests in you. If you undereat, 
tools that could support that could be setting an alarm to remind you to eat meals, having simple things like smoothies, you know, giving yourself that structure to kind of make sure that you are reminded to eat. Or get your own Dallas. (laughs) Or then, yeah, get Dallas messaging. Genius. Or like if you're somebody that tends to stress eat, it's working on that those tools that support your emotions more like practicing tools like halt, you know, am I hungry, angry, lonely, tired, like taking that time to pause, meditation, more mindful practice, exercise, reduce the stress significantly as well. Using journaling, things like food and mood journals that we would use with clients quite frequently to bring about that more awareness about what you're eating and that more sense of present and really learning to check in with your hunger. All of these things are going to support support. But also by supporting yourself, you can change your environment. If there is, you know, changing the environment around you, if you've got a lot of snacks around in periods of stress, maybe limit that, change the food types and food sources that are around you, you know, have things packaged and portioned. You can change your environment while you try to make change emotionally too. So it's checking in with how your stress is manifesting and supporting yourself, managing your environment while you in tandem manage the stress with things like meditation, mindfulness, exercise, sleep, you know, and looking at the other stressors in your life that you can support there. But yeah, the the cusp of it is that both need to be managed and addressed for health. And at the end of the day, regardless of which one you're showing, managing your stress is going to be key for more than just your eating for so many other parameters of your well-being and health physically and emotionally. And I want to speak. Go on, Dallas. Um, I would also like to add in that sense that um, we have studies shown that when you place someone on a monotonous diet, right, and even though it's given them sufficient amount of food, right, we see there's great activations in the hippocampus, the insula, and the caudate, right, which is all in response to kind of food rewards. So when they're on a high-stress situation, if you're one of those people eating a monotonous diet, there's a higher... Like a meal plan. There's a higher likelihood that you are going to overeat on hyper palatable foods. So think about that the next time you want to go eat chicken, broccoli, and rice and have a very stressful job. Yeah, it, it won't end too well. Uh, yeah, that's meal plans are shit. Plus, uh, you know. Yeah, and I think that's a big thing as well. Like, if people are saying that they're craving certain foods, it's not the food that you're craving; it's the emotional response. That to that food that that food has given you in the past you've learned to use that food somewhere it was given to you as a reward or taken away from you as a kid or it was been your stress mechanism or something that you've learned to do when you're tired angry lonely whatever it may be uh, and that's the, it's not the food that you're craving i've never said i crave a pavlova so that's the proof there um but one of the things that you kind of mentioned jane is it's been taught to you about stress your coping mechanism um dallas and i were talking about this there's a book called the body says no if someone wants a wake-up call with how they manage their stress uh please 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 read that you'll be surprised and you may go into scarcity mode to probably stress you out how much stress actually hits the body um and then kind of some of the, the tips to kind of reduce stress eating would be it's a normal response yeah. um you say so you need to be sounder to yourself on that side of things so it's not beating yourself up for being stressed because if you stress about stress eating you're stressing yourself out more um so the 
key is to finding a pause. Like Jay mentioned halt, which is, are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? So identify the trigger. So you need to identify a pause between the trigger, which could be work, family, kids, or work or finance or whatever it may be. Could you try having a cup of tea or a cup of water instead? Could you have try having some fruit instead? Could you try ring a friend instead? Could you try go for a walk instead? Could you try some breathing? The amount of clients that are hesitant to try the breathing at the very beginning, and then when they do it, they're like, this is so, this, like, how did I not know this beforehand? Breathing is one thing that we can't control in our lives. We, those who want to control everything end up controlling nothing. And when we get anxious about things, breathing brings it back in and brings them some element of control. So if you're looking for that control, taking a couple of big deep breaths in, whether it be chest breathing or belly breathing, depending where you're feeling the stress, anchoring, which is, I've seen Dallas work as wizardry with one of the clients. So if that client's listening, she'd be like, yeah, you worked wizardry. It's like a voodoo. Um, and ask yourself, what do you need right now? That's one big question. What do you need right now? It could be just talking to someone. It could be just going outside to get some air. It could be having a glass of water. It could be something else, whatever it may be. But you need to identify the trigger so that you understand what it is. And it may not even be stress that you're feeling. It could be just a combination of something else because your body doesn't like, it's like sticking a fork into a toaster all the time. That's essentially what stress is doing to your body. Your body doesn't like it. And if it's combination, if it's knock on, knock on, knock on, it's something's going to give, whether it's your health, but people will be like, listen to this way, I'm not stressed. Like, yeah, but people think stress is like this anxious, downbeaten, fragile thing. But stress catches up on us. We don't realize it. I've gone through it. That's when I had my mental health scare and when I had my health scare was, I didn't realize what was happening to me. And I don't want that to happen to someone else. That's why we talk about these topics. So stress eating, uh, Jane, thank you so much. That, that that study on the rats thing, I think, is usually is and well remembered on the brain side of things. <laughs> No, it's like when it comes to stress, it's like what you're saying with the breathing. So if I messaged out today about box breathing for that reason to a client who was incredibly stressed out to just take those few minutes and pause and the simplest tool of just actually box breathing, that counting in for four as you breathe, holding for four, breathing out for four, holding for four. It is so centering and so helpful for sleep and so helpful for just calming you because you have to focus on the count and that hold and so it just takes your mind off and you can do it for like three to five minutes I used to use it for before I did podcasts early on when I used to get really stressed out before doing competitions and I did with CrossFit and stuff before anything really stressful I would use this breathing to calm me down because I was so, I would get so anxious about it all and I still like use it from time to time when I'm just feeling overwhelmed to just bring me back to the present and I've advised it to several clients and it's it's really really helpful I think in just having a focused breathing because it's easy to say to someone just breathe like work on your breathing but sometimes you need really something tangible to grab onto and having that focus of like okay I have to count the four in I have to hold for four I have to count the four out I have to hold for four and just repeat it can just be really really soothing and positive yeah um I remember Grace who was on the podcast relating to introducing the pause and the breathing she got the pause symbol as her screensaver onto her phone because she was like, I, I I look at it every day. And as soon as I like go to swipe unlock, it's like, all right, take a big deep breath in. And the difference when she downloaded that little caption or has having a little post-it over your desk or whatever it may be, or at the fridge or having a little post-it around the house. Jonathan Goodman spoke about it when I off air with me. It was like, having a little post-it around the house. Right, do I really need this? What do I really, really need right now? Do I really need this food right now? Uh, that could be the biggest thing. It's like over time, you're trying to rewire, rewire the system. 
Um, that people have put like sent me messages of the halt image that I like what I posted yeah, yeah. before putting it up on things. And there's something else like with distraction. So often with people were saying to like distract, like to, to breathe, to be mindful, to be present, to do all of those things and find positive comfort or, you know, the, whatever the emotion is to, to take care of that emotion. If you're stressed, like angry, tired and all, but sometimes don't be worried if like initially that's really hard and you have to seek a distraction, like just find something to do that takes you away from it. Like, even if it is jumping in for a shower, going for a walk, blasting your favorite tunes and dancing around the sitting room, something to just take your mind off it for a moment. Like I've had clients who've taken up knitting or like use like even anxiety rings and stuff or just things, something to take to occupy their hands or occupy their minds or just take yourself out of the situation until you figure out what's going on. So it can even be that simple. It doesn't, it's not, you're not necessarily going to figure out the emotions right away, but supporting yourself, it can be just taking yourself out of the situation for a moment. Yeah. I think it's also important to to note with like the likes of kind of the women. Who are, I want to everybody who's. Go ahead. No, no, Gary, delay on the screen. Um, thing I was going to say is like, if of women who have a, of our of, of menstrual cycle age like if they're if they're getting pms pms means there's something up with the equilibrium which means your body is trying to like tell you to kind of calm down on something whether it be exercising whether it be something up with the hormones or whether it be stress if you are having pms and severe pms you need to look at what is the actual trigger for you is it stress is it your hormones is it your work-life balance are you over exercising or whatever it may be there could be other elements too but you have to look at the reason why you're getting pms isn't just because pms that's not a good enough reason you need to like try to address it when you bring in the kind of stress management to us i would be surprised if the pms doesn't subside if it's a non-hormonal issue sorry dallas no 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 um to loop back to what jamie was saying with distractions um understand that distractions are good to bring you from hyperarousal back down to equilibrium, right? If you continuously use distractions as your way to deal with things and actually don't come back and deal with the freaking fucking problem, well, then you have now just created the distraction as a coping mechanism and not dealing with your shit. So it's like distractions are beautiful and are needed and we all use them but don't use a distraction as your now coping mechanism because you're in the same boat as just going oh i'm gonna like forget about it or keep it in and not talk about it so it's like be conscious of that i had to say the same thing to a client i'm like you can go for a walk every single day but if you don't address the problem you're now in a problem once you're in equilibrium reflect on what might have been really wrong when you can be more rational exactly more realistic a bit more compassionate with yourself and if you're if you're struggling with your stress and you've never been taught how to deal with your stress and you've got kids they're mimicking you right now so remember that what you do is getting mimicked by the next generation so if you're someone who has struggled with their kind of like eating or their emotional response to stress and never been taught how to actually feel or be angry or whatever it may be and your kids are watching you it, they'll probably respect you a hell of a lot more for opening up and that was one of the episodes with josh josh was like emotional avoidance won't work bring yourself into equilibrium is works to a point but constantly avoiding things is probably why an awful lot of people are struggling the way they are right now unfortunately 
because volcanoes have erupted. People haven't been taught how to deal with their shit. And I'm not saying I'm immune to it. I'm not saying Dallas is immune to it. I'm not saying Jane's immune to it. What we are saying is we've had to do an awful lot of inner work on ourselves. Dallas has had me fucking on meltdowns at the second lockdown. I think it was after the surgery. Yeah. I had a fuck on full on meltdown. Yeah. I just wasn't coping. But my old coping mechanism was not to talk. So my coping mechanism is verbal diarrhea, Dallas, <laughs> help me. <laughs> um, Jane, do you need to go? Are you okay for another little while? Um, I'd like, I might as well probably go now because I have to go in like the next 10 minutes anyway. Yeah, you can you can head off on your merry way to do it. Do your 15th class. <laughs> yeah. No, thank, thank you, Jane. Um, and I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> it's so weird having to leave a podcast i know i'm like sorry about it sorry sorry we'll yeah. use the video before it <laughs> dallas you're stuck with me so the favorite one's gone so it's me and dallas now you hang up first <laughs> uh yeah um so dallas the next one that we're going to talk about because i think it's kind of we were talking off air about with jane about it was pku so i think it's important for us to understand what is pku how to manage it and the difficulties that people can have from it and how how difficult they can have from not dealing with their their shit either cool we can we can we can share this Um, all right so pku right is basically uh, a deficiency in the enzyme so uh, the enzyme is phenylalanine hydroxylase right to be precise um it attaches, uh, it's actually located on the gene, so the 12th chromosome, right? And what effectively means is that what, what the gene actually does is converts amino acid phenylalanine to tyrosine in the liver, right? Now, if you are deficient in that, that means now the amino acid starts to build up, right? So we see a massive accumulation of this um, phenylalanine and its metabolites, and the byproduct of that is brain damage. Uh, we see mental retardation and we see people with epilepsy. We often see skin disorders coming from it and like loss of hair as well. So now the obvious thing here is like to kind of fix this is to have a low phenylalanine diet, right? But we need some of it for protein synthesis. And that's going to be the biggest key here when we're talking about this is that it needs to be a lowish diet. Um, now, to kind of give a little bit of everyone kind of the um, idea behind this is that when it is discovered, it's often discovered in children, right? So you can often test this early on, right? Now, it's something how they do it is effectively they check the blood levels, right? And they start basically giving you a little bit of phenylalanine and they kind of increase it until they see obviously an issue. Now, as that goes on, they'll be given a diet, which is low, which we'll talk about in a few seconds, minutes, basically. But basically what ends up happening is we see kids as they start growing over older, thanks to peer pressure, actually find it hard to stick to the diet and the reason why is because obviously kids are eating slightly different you know to how they're eating you know and that consistent need to check in on what they're doing how they're doing and how their blood levels could be is going to be problematic right so they often try to change how they eat things so now we often thought that uh, what was it i think about 15 years ago or so 
that you know cerebral damage due to PKU um, did not occur after early development period. Um, and we were like, oh, okay, cool. If they replace their diet with phenylalanine, you know, and they go to a more normal diet, that there wouldn't be any issues, even though some of the metabolic um, abnormalities still occur. However, when children who went to a normal diet, um, especially, you know what I mean, between early childhood, it's that like four, five to kind of 10 years old, um, were found to be vulnerable for regressing in IQ. They developed actually neurological symptoms and had struggling dealing with day-to-day basis. And the biggest thing with that is that when you have PKU, you, you have to follow a low phenylalanine diet. So it's not something that you can go right for the first 10 years of my life. I'm going to be like, oh, okay, cool. You know, this is what I'm going to stick with. And now that peer pressure and teenagers comes, I'm just going to, you know, go away from it. You can't have that. It is something that you're going to be focused on the rest of your life. And it's like, if you decide to push the boundaries of that, there can be some serious ramifications on that. When we start looking at like, the different studies and everything we saw we see that there is how do we say there's a variance between country and how much the v the v the gene frequency is turned on and off in a sense in a sense that we can see the uk has higher amounts um of children having issues with pku than ireland now we can see France, Spain, see similar levels. But then we see in the US, we have a higher occurrence. So it's like, there's not a specific place. There's not a specific, like, you know, population that we see the gene turn on and off. So that's just something to kind of, you know, think about that. It's not just, oh, look, it happens out of nowhere. We see for about in Ireland, it's about one in every 5,000 children end up having PKU, just about. So when we're talking about like, uh, diet for it, right? Um, kudos to Jane making this nice, uh, nice and simple write up um, about it. So I don't have to go through all the long um, evidence based papers behind it. But effectively, it's like the biggest thing you're going to do is split your doses of protein, and you're pretty much going to be removing most protein sources. And when I mean most protein sources, we're talking about eggs, we're talking about fish. We're talking about poultry and anything in that source as well. And the reason behind it, it's got high phenylalanine quantities, right? So effectively, what people are going to do is they're going to take things that are more fruit and veg-based, or they're going to be taking um, supplements. So the way to do it is protein replacement, right? So effectively, what it does is it removes phenylalanine from the actual um say shake drink right and gives ensure that you've got a high amount of vitamins and minerals so that way you're not deficient because a lot of those who have people you end up being deficient so that's something to kind of think of on that side we also see that like when it comes to it we see that there's deficiencies in b12s we often see that there's also um, cholesterol issues so it's like we've got to think about in terms of on the diet, ensuring that we are getting sufficient amount like of omega-3s and omega-6s. And then we've got to ensure that we are getting good enough nutritional value. Now, there used to be, from what I remember correctly, I think it was about 2004-2005, the idea was you could just eat fruits and veg, right? No issues. 
Um, and the only thing you had to watch out was for potatoes because potatoes has a high content, right? However, we're also finding that there is quite a bit of discrepancies in it in terms of the reason why is because of how you farm certain fruit and veg. So some fruit and veg actually might be a little bit higher or lower. So you can't just blanketly state fruit and veg is going to be your way to do it. So it's something you have to be conscious of that when you can say like, Organic, possibly, possibly, depending on what they use on the soil and everything, could have a higher content. So it's something to kind of watch out. There's a reason why you see a lot of um, people with PKU you often end up monitoring their bloods quite regularly um, for in terms of trying to figure out that level of phenylalanine in the blood. Ideally, when you are monitoring, you'll see most of them do it at the same time every day. Um, and it's usually fasting for kind of the ideal practice. Anything you want to jump in on? I think it's important to mention that, like, because you're not necessarily getting the full chain of amino acids in your body from because you're not having the normal protein that someone else who doesn't have PKU have, you might struggle to recover from actual training and exercise. And you might find that if you are a woman that at a particular time of the month, that if you had struggled to recover beforehand, that might be exacerbated that little bit more because the full chain of amino acids it will help to you to recover, will keep your immune system healthy and stuff like that as well. So you might find that it could take you a little bit longer to recover from training sessions. It could take you, you might find that you have a little bit more DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness, even if it's from something like walking or just a, a general leg day or a class or something like that. So it's being aware that you may need to listen to your body that little bit more and may not be able to do as much as someone else might be. But it's also like you, most people, there's two extremes of people, people that are doing too much and there's people who are doing too little. And it's probably halfway that most people need to hit anyway. So say if you were finding that you're doing five or six walks a week and you're going to full intensity for 45 minutes to an hour, potentially bring that back down to maybe three or four and bring the intensity down a little bit. And I guarantee you'll feel a hell lot better, but you're still getting your steps in. You're still doing something, some sort of movement for yourself each day, whatever it may be. Like you don't need to hammer yourself every single session. Like that isn't the point of exercise. The exact point of exercise is to be able to celebrate, to be able to move your body and to be able to uh, enjoy it, something that you that you enjoy doing or also to challenge yourself. But it's also knowing the right time to challenge it. So if it is someone that is struggling with a particular time of the month that they may feel a bit more weaker, you may also find that your ligaments or something like that may not be as strong at a certain time of the month as well. Hit sessions, running, loads and loads of endless amounts of fucking squats, whatever it may be, aren't going to help. Um, and I'm not picking on squats. I'm not picking on hit sessions. I'm just letting you know you may not recover from them as much. That's that. That's the the kind of like there may not be enough research on that. I think PKU is kind of one of these things that I don't think an awful lot of people realize anyway, or that exists yeah. anyway. Um, so I'm just going from a, from an experience with clients in that, um, just linking that the recovery may be a little bit more delayed, but like it still doesn't make up for that. If you're not sleeping or your stress management isn't there, that has to be a role too. Like if you're, you charge your phone every night and this goes for someone who isn't even pay like if you're not, if you're not sleeping every night or you're not getting enough sleep and you're waking up tired every night or every morning, you need to look at like 
are you get are you on your phone right before you go to bed or are you on your laptop are you having caffeine too late are you stressed to the hilt are you waking up because of that are you going through parent benefits whatever maybe again night sweats but you need to kind of the same boundaries still apply for pku um as the with 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 fibro which that i spoke about as well kind of like managing kind of like the stress managing the boundaries all that side of stuff so i think what you've said on pku is superb um and thank you to jane for drawing up that little um slide that we have uh and i know we've got a recipe book for some more pku as well it's not a meal plan it's just ideas for for someone to kind of add a little bit more variety to their food because it can feel like it's an almost like an uphill balance uphill yeah. challenge especially if you've got kids um it could be you're trying to cook the same meals for yourselves you don't need to cook different meals but you can make it fun for them you just may need to change it a little bit or add in a little bit more like um, and I just checked there as well because I, uh, I couldn't remember the, the exact number. Uh, mortality rates is uh, an increase of 2.4% over the control. So in a sense, that's saying that if we take the average lifespan um, of 80 years old, we're going to see that you're going to have fewer years to live with PKU. And the way to extend your life so that way you're normal to controls is getting control of not only training, but also your cardiac output. And that's a key. It's going to take you a little bit longer because obviously you don't have enough um, phenylalanine in the body. So protein synthesis will be a little bit lower. So it will take longer for you to not only recover, but also to create muscle. So it means that overall, it will take you longer to do something. But just because it's longer does not mean you shouldn't do it. Because it's like if you're thinking about your time on this earth, the better you can, well, should I say the longer you can be in on here, especially if you have kids, the better it is. So it's like, think about actually, as you were saying, take your time, get into some exercise, get your rugby fitness up. And that way, you know, the statistic of, you know, having less life on this planet drastically decreases to the point that there is now. Superb. Um, the last one that we're going to talk about, I think this is where I come in and go on off an absolute rant, I Ooh. think. Uh, I think this is where I come in. Uh, it's in relation to kind of getting away from the slimming club mentality and this is something that um is coming up an awful lot and i think from day to day working with clients i think the same thing same topic same sentences same wording same mm -hmm. vocabulary is kind of coming in from clients and i think it's quite interesting how many people have bought into it for so long um before i go on it does work for some people it gets you some people to a point yeah. i'm not anti-slimming club i am pro the community element of it mm. what i am anti about it is the education side of things there is zero education and the shame element to it that oh, is yeah. the bit i don't like so i compare a slimming club to the x that you keep going back to even though you know it's not beneficial for you <laughs> oh brilliant but like we've all been there well, maybe you have Dallas, you definitely have <laughs> uh so it's that it's that thing that we keep going back on we know it's not going to be beneficial for us but we are looking for this quick solution we are looking for this quick fix well one you're not broken so you can't fix anything uh the approach that you're looking for needs to be altered or changed. Yeah. 
if you are stepping on a scales and someone is encouraging you to do it and you don't really want to do it, don't do it. It's kind of like, well, if they told you to run in front of the traffic, would you do it? Well, of course. Um, you know, we're a team. We're a community. <laughs> we're lemmings. But, remember that? That was I remember the little noises. I'm not going to make that noise. Um, but it's also like, if you have your meetings in the morning or if you have meetings in the afternoon and Jane, or in the evening, Jane has mm-hmm. spoken about this before, that I've known, I know some people that would starve themselves with a whole day and be dizzy going to the meetings in the evening just so a piece of plastic and a needle would tell them. And then they would probably eat the press in the afternoon or the afterwards. Kind of like, well, it's, it, you're, you're, you're giving the control to the piece of plastic. Yeah. You're not fueling yourself. Your phone gets charged every day. Your car gets charged every day. You're feeding your kids regular meals. If you have more regular meals, look after your sleep and look after your stress. You are in a much stronger position than you actually realize. There will always be emotions present. There will always be emotionally. Christmas and birthdays are like there's birthdays and stuff coming up for loads of clients this week and kids at birthdays and stuff, which is amazing. And it's amazing that things are opening back up. But where I have a problem with the whole thing is the wording that they use, the <laughs> sins, or so it's not even spelled right. What? The fact I'm not invited or getting any of the cake, like that's ridiculous. It's, 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 yeah, I know. I, I might actually get them to send this. I'm actually, my text and actually saying, can I have some cake? Um, enjoy life. It, 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 I don't know. I've always been the person that's, memories are there to be created as what adds the essence of life it's like and to bring it in it is what life is because you're not a human without memory so why would you spend your time your very little time on this planet to be as morbid as possible making absolute fucking shit memories because you hate the way things are being done. You have to be forced to do something and you want to go, oh, look, I'm going to take away food and, you know, take away all pleasure in love. Sorry, we froze. Um, the yeah, you don't need to take the, the way the pleasures in life was where we finished up with Dallas there. But I think like your job isn't to lose weight all the time. You're not on this planet to lose weight. Well, you're on and you're on this planet to make the most of it, enjoy it as you can, learn lessons about yourself. There will be suffering. There will be things that are thrown at you, but you learn more about yourself and that and how you react is probably what's going to happen. But the model of those slimming clubs is built on a recurring repeat business. Oh, yeah. Shame you into money. Come on. And I don't think people realize that if you if you type in the CEO's quote or the MD's quote of one of those slimming clubs, you will find that the person has said it themselves. That's why there's a certain statistic of like, I think it's like 86% of people end up going back to those clubs. It's around that number. And it removes the element of listening to your hunger signals because like, well, I've got a certain amount of sins today I've got to spend. It's kind of like, well, I'm giving you 500 euro. Are you going to spend it all in one day? You might, but it's not good. Or else you could just spend it over a hundred quid a day 
over five days or whatever it may be rather than spending all at once everyone else have a different approach they dictate what they want you to do they don't encourage you they don't take into the impact of like the mental cycle on top of side of things when things are going to fluctuate up and down the weight's going to fluctuate up and down sorry to break it to you it's going to go up it's going to go down but if you're stepping onto the scales and you're putting your self-esteem onto it and putting your, your limiting beliefs on top of it you don't need to do that you can take away from the scales it's like oh well what happened how do i know if i'm making progress how do you feel Mm-hmm. that's the question. How do you actually feel? I feel better in my clothes. Well, then why do you need scales to tell you? You don't go into the shop looking for a size 70 kilos. Nope. I always say that. And so many people will go in restrictive mode before they actually do it. The the silly rules, The I think there was some other term I heard recently. I can't remember what it is. The sins and what's the other one? Um, I can't remember what it is. But there's a reason. People will continue to go to them. Um, I just hope that the support that they get is improved. Um, I think there's a reason why um, a certain slimming club has left Ireland now. Like, I want to bring up a weird, crazy thing, right? Slimming clubs, some of the biggest ones we find in the world, pay money for research, right? Which is fundamentally cool. They're paying, they're giving money away for research, which shows better ways of eating and support, right? So you would think that they would spend a good few couple of thousands, you know, hundred thousands to, you know, make these studies occur. And it's like someone doesn't read the study that they invested in because it's like the most fundamental retarded thing I've come to see from a company. It's we're going to give you money so we can see research and nutrition and exercise type of thing. And then out comes a result saying, you know, good support, you know, it's not low carb or high fat. It's just whatever the person can stick to. And um, we get the takeaway of food is bad in general and we should shame you. Like, yeah, it's kind of like studying for the test and then getting the answers off someone else. It's kind of like it's it, it doesn't it's not making a lot of sense. They're taking one box of kind of corporate social responsibility and paying for studies and stuff, but they're not applying it to themselves. It's just it's yeah, like I'm not here to berate them. I think I've said enough on so many podcasts about the likes of social sort of, of slimming clubs for the social mm-hmm. benefit. I've said enough on them. It was just coming in an awful lot from clients and I kind of just felt it needed to be reset. Like if it works for you, amazing. But if you're going back to it all the time, it means it's not working for you. I'm sorry to break it to you. Yeah. Um, if you're someone who has potentially gone the route of, oh, I've lost six down, but now I've put on five, that means it's not working for you. You could be happy where you are. Yeah. 100%. That's the big caveat there. You could be happy where you are. But if you're someone who has lost six, put it back on six or put on back on seven, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not shaming you in any way. And I don't want that to be perceived as that way. But if you're still saying that it's worked, it hasn't worked. Because yeah. diet means way of life. Diet doesn't mean restriction, doesn't mean sin, doesn't mean calorie count. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. These are all very, very useful tools. All diets work. People will say that diets don't work. One study said diets don't work and people have latched onto it diets do work but normally it's the approach and the human emotion and psychology which is not taken into impact and that's where the 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 barriers lie it's with the individual it's not the diet it's the individual which is where the issues lie so diets do work and i don't care what anyone else says diets do work and to quote luke lehman on that you have a maintenance problem 
It's not a diet problem. It's not a training problem. It's not anything of that. It's a maintenance problem. That's the issue here. So it's like, oh, look, it helped me lose weight. And it's like, yeah, but it, did you teach you how to maintain the weight loss? Well, then clearly it's not the solution for you. And that's, you've got to understand that point. Cause it's just like, you can't have weight loss and not have maintenance followed through. If you want to keep losing weight, by all means, kill yourself that way. I don't recommend it. We have hundreds of thousands of people living in poverty going through that very process right now because of inability to have food. It's like the diet will work for you to lose weight. You need to learn how to maintenance and you need the support and understanding that comes with everything else that comes with it, basically. I think that's a, I think that's very well said. I'm glad you brought that up. And Luke's been on the podcast. And Luke, if you want to, if you want to laugh every day, go on to Luke's stories because his memes are are oh, hilarious and he's he said on the podcast what he's doing at that time when he sent those memes it's a bit grim but it's uh but no like it, it is it is like people will freak out like when you say oh i need to go to maintenance and like we spoke about maintenance is sexy if you type in maintenance sexy in my name into yeah. uh your podcast provider you'll find an episode on it but at some point you will need to, you can't be losing weight all the time that, yeah. like you're, you have to there has to be something of you yeah, but it's also you got to think about it. Dieting is stressful to the system. You also see a lot of metabolic adaptions. We see different and libido goes to oh, shit. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, come on now. What else will you be doing? Yeah, it's it's not worth it. Like, um, yeah. And what I what I mean by it's not worth it, I mean is the long term restrictive element that you're put someone's putting themselves through right now is not worth it. What I'm saying is, if you are happy where you are, credit to you because you are a rare person. Yeah. And you've also and hold on to that. Yeah, 100%. And it's also, can we please stop looking at social media as the distinguisher of whether you should diet or not, or try and spend at least seven to nine months of the year dieting, even though you're effectively not overweight and you don't need to diet for nine months of the year. You also have to think about it like how, like, you're like, I think you pay what, five or 10 quid for someone to weigh you in? Yeah, I think that's how much it is. Imagine if someone was going to go through, I, I went through this with one of my clients recently, and like how much they had spent um, on clubs over the years. Mm. Um, it's quite a scary number. No. Uh, like, if you think of it, it's like 520 quid a year, potentially multiplied by 30. Mm-hmm. So it's quite an awful lot of money. And then when you're looking to, at an approach of trying to, bring in some sort of intuitive eating. I had an episode with Rebecca King on what intuitive eating is. It's intuitive to the individual and whatever it may be. And that's an important sentence. Um, it's bringing in the element of when you want to bring in the regular meals, bringing your sleep, bringing your stress, working on your behaviors. It's uncomfortable. We are aware of that. And we're not sitting here in ivory tower. We've done stupid shit. And we'll continue to do. Let me put that out there because I, I, I am one of those people. Yeah, but Dallas does it to figure it out how stupid it is and why you shouldn't do it. <laughs> and then, then, then you, you give the advice and be like, yeah, but like, have you done it? And be like, yeah, mm-hmm. trust me, you don't want to do that. No, and I, I remember someone else, I think it was Brian Keane said he, he said it on a few, he tried on a few, like when keto or whatever, maybe. And he was like, I did it to try and see the psychological aspect of it more than that. I, Cause I knew it would work, Yeah, but it was like the psychological aspect he wants to, so he can relate it to clients. And sometimes it's interesting to experiment on yourself. I don't fancy on keto. I like ice cream way too much. So I won't be doing it. 
uh, and I don't encourage most people to do it. So, um, so this episode is like there's so much to untangle in it. Like we've talked about stress eating, we talked about fibromyalgia, we talked about PKU, we talked about slimming clubs. Like there's so much to it, and I really hope someone has resonated with it. Uh, and if you have questions, pop either of us a message, uh, and including Jane a message. If you want to work with us, pop us a DM. Um, we have very limited spaces because things have just gone a little bit nuts with things at the minute with the amount of appearances and stuff and uh, that are coming in. So we have limited spaces. So if you want to work with one of us on managing and working with you and you like our approach, pop us a DM, we can book in a call and we can take you through the process and we can go through that. Invest in yourself. The only thing that's stopping most people is fear. Fear is false evidence appearing real. First element of it, false evidence. There is no evidence. If you have, un, have if you haven't succeeded before, you need to change the approach. And if you want the approach that's realistically going to work for you and you're willing to get that a little bit more uncomfortable and do a little bit more work mm. on yourself and do the training and stuff, happy days. Um, we can help, but we can't make you do anything. And that's the biggest thing. No coach can do that. We're not here to motivate you either. Your job, you motivate we tell you and advise what to do and make you realize why your coping mechanisms are the certain way they are. Yeah. And most people that leave with us, like we've had Eilish with, with us for what, three years? Yeah. Um, and Eilish has been on the podcast. We've got Louise for about three years. So like there are clients here that have been with us and put their trust in us for a very long time and very lucky to be in this position. So if you want to work with us or you want to work with Dallas or you want to work with Jane or work with myself, just say who you want to work with. Um, and Dallas, thank you so much. That was amazing what you were talking about with fibro. I think the fibro stuff was a lot more in depth than, but that's the way Dallas operates. <laughs> the information. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dallas, thank you so much. I know, boys. It's been a pleasure. Guys, if you enjoyed the episode, please do tag us up on your story. Uh, please do pop us a message. And if you want to work with us, pop us a message as well.